increased microbleeds in apparently healthy patients. What does this mean? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Stephen Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg is Director of Hemorrhagic Stroke Research, Mass General Hospital Stroke Research Center. Thank you very much for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. With improved MRIs, we're now finding microbleeding much more than we ever had anticipated. How do you view this? Well, first, it's a really striking change in the landscape over the past few years that we already knew these were kind of common, but most estimates had them at sort of 5% of asymptomatic elderly, which was a lot, but still not a huge number. And what's changed is really the MRI methods have gotten better and the populations looked at have been older. So now the most recent numbers have them as high as 20, 30% of elderly and people over 80 even higher than that. And so it really focuses the question on either what they mark or what they actually do to the brain. But whatever they are, they're certainly not a rare lesion at all anymore. Is there any significance based on where they may be located in the brain? We think we can make a good guess at the underlying small vessel disease that gives rise to them based on the location. And this comes out of years of work, first from neuropathological work and more recently from MRI work that says that of the two most common causes, the two most common small vessel diseases that cause microbleeds are hypertensive vasculopathy and cerebral amyloid angiopathy, the amyloid from Alzheimer's disease that gets deposited in small blood vessels. And the hypertensive small vessel disease tends to be in deep gray matter structures, so the basal ganglia and thalamus and in pons and cerebellum, whereas the amyloid in the blood vessels is more likely to cause bleeds out in the lobar brain region, so right at the gray-white junction near the surface or at the surface of the brain. So that anatomic distinction is pretty useful for making an educated guess as to the basis of microbleeds from looking at the distribution on an MRI scan. Would you then say that if you found microbleeds deep in the brain, that blood pressure control was not adequately done? I think that's the most likely inference. Not all the data are in yet, and there probably is more to the equation than just how the blood pressure was controlled over time. I think we're still getting a handle on that. But in general, it's a good surmise that it's a marker of longstanding hypertensive damage to the small blood vessels. The most remarkable work that recently came out was from the Rotterdam scan study. And I think this is what has caught everybody's attention. Would you comment on how they were able to acquire so much material over a pretty short period of time? Well, first, it illustrates the power of population-based studies here in the U.S., studies like the Framingham study or cardiovascular health study, and then the Rotterdam study certainly another terrific example of the power of getting normal asymptomatic patients from the general population, in particular aging individuals, reflecting the fact that Western societies are all aging, so this becomes a larger and larger demographic throughout Western societies. And so they matched the power of that with really state-of-the-art MRI techniques. They did some innovative work on their own to show how 
using thinner MRI slices and slightly different acquisition parameters could make a big difference in detection of microbleeds, probably without making a sacrifice in specificity. So they're probably still seeing what are bona fide microbleeds, but seeing them at a higher rate than people had seen before. So as I say, these numbers make it go from being kind of an odd curiosity to being a really common asymptomatic finding in healthy elderly. Before we leave hypertension in particular, some studies have shown that left ventricular mass index can show whether blood pressure is well controlled. How would you combine this particular diagnostic study with if you found microbleeds in a person's brain? Yeah, I think it really gets back to the point you raised earlier that it suggests that these microbleeds, especially in the deep gray matter structures, are a good marker of long-standing hypertension in the same way that we think of left ventricular hypertrophy as being a marker of long-standing hypertension. So that study that came from a Korean group really makes the argument that of different factors that may be at play, it probably is control of blood pressure over time that really is the trigger for these deep gray matter microbleeds. You mentioned that microbleeds may be associated with amyloid angiopathy. What do we do when we find microbleeds on the surface of the brain We don't have amyloid yet deposited that we can identify. Should we be worried or caution our patients or even begin to think about cognitive changes in these particular persons? It raises a lot of questions, although at bottom the the real problem is we don't yet have good treatments for amyloid angiopathy as we don't have really effective disease-modifying treatments for Alzheimer's disease to which it's closely related. From a prognostic standpoint, there's no reason to be pessimistic yet in studies of amyloid angiopathy patients. The majority of them are not demented. They probably do have an increased risk over time, but clearly it's not an inevitable byproduct of having amyloid in the blood vessels, having dementia that doesn't necessarily go along hand in hand. And the other question that comes up from a practical standpoint is whether we should think differently about anticoagulation or antithrombotic treatment in these patients. And that's really an important area that is under investigation. And right now, we as clinicians are in a position of having to balance the risk and the benefit of treatment, particularly in these individuals who are giving some evidence of having a hemorrhage-prone state. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Greenberg, Dr. Greenberg is Director of Hemorrhagic Stroke Research, Mass General Hospital Stroke Research Center. And we're talking about the new finding, the increased incidence of microbleeds, both deep in the gray matter and also on the surface of the brain, and what this may mean as far as predicting cognitive changes or hemorrhagic events. You bring up an interesting point about antithrombotic agents. I thought I had it pretty well clear in my mind what to do about patients who had atrial fibrillation that had no contraindications to anticoagulation. Do you think the finding of microbleeds in a patient with atrial fibrillation now may change how I treat them? It's a great question, and unfortunately, it's a really high-stakes decision because the consequences on either side are so high that, on the one hand, we feel we can do great things, as you say, for preventing thromboembolic stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation, that anticoagulation, typically with warfarin, is a really effective treatment. On the other hand, the most important adverse event related to anticoagulation is hemorrhagic stroke, and those are also absolutely devastating events, even in our era of acute stroke treatment, the mortality among patients who have a hemorrhage in the brain on warfarin is, is about 50%, really high. 
So at this point, our recommendation is still to proceed with anticoagulation in someone in whom it's indicated. We don't feel that the microbleeds yet are enough reason to avoid it, but there are lots of ways to turn the dial slightly in one direction or the other that might tip the decision. And so it remains very close to a tipping point for us as clinicians and really draws on our ability to look at the full picture and all the potential risks and benefits in an individual. Uh, Dr. Greenberg, is it possible that the association of the mutation of collagen 4 gene might help us understand microbleeding more completely? Well, it's really an intriguing hint at what may be a future area of research in the field that the investigators in the work you're describing found mutations in the collagen 4 gene in some families who have a constellation of small vessel related problems, but including microbleeding. And what it really focuses attention on is not just the processes like hypertension or amyloid angiopathy that can damage blood vessels, but the makeup of the blood vessel itself and that there may be components of the blood vessel wall, such as collagen, in which abnormalities trigger particular susceptibility to damage. And at this point, its relevance to the wider problem of microbleeding remains to be determined, but it's really an intriguing clue that we're looking at only a limited part of the picture of what makes a blood vessel likely to go and suffer damage and cause this kind of small area of bleeding. In a clinical setting, do you think we might be able to avoid some of the cerebral angiography that we do in patients with cerebral vascular accidents if we find microbleeding? In other words, might this suggest we're not going to find an aneurysm or we're not going to find an AV malformation? Yeah, it's really a, a good question, a good practical question. And my feeling is, yes, you're correct. I don't know of studies that have been able to apply this in a systematic way, but I think in general, in clinical decision-making, it makes a lot of sense to use microbleeds as a marker for a vasculopathy, again, such as hypertension or amyloid angiopathy, and use that to avoid the risk of angiography in someone where, based on the overall MRI appearance, you can say the yield would be very low. Well, do you think there is a place then in investigating patients with unexplained cognitive disturbances, especially if they have risk factors of a vascular nature? Well, it's relatively easy to do if a patient is undergoing MRI scan. Anyway, it's relatively easy to add in the additional MRI sequence, typically known as gradient echo or magnetic susceptibility sequence. It's done, even though there are ways to make it more sensitive in research, it is done as a routine clinical sequence requiring only about three minutes of scanning time. And so it's reasonable to do that to get a full picture of the kinds of small vessel-related lesions that may be contributing to cognitive impairment. Of course, like any finding, it raises the question then of how to deal with it in a practical way, and we're at the beginning of that story, clearly not at the end. Yeah, so much of this has to do, what do you, now we have the information, what do you do with it? In my practice, we do MRIs for trauma or migraines, and you come up with microbleeding. Or we might later on talk about lacunar infarctions or atrophy. What do you do with this information now that you've done the MRI for a reason that doesn't have anything to do with cerebral vascular accidents? Right. Still largely remains to be determined. I think the straightforward answer is to do what you would have done anyway in terms of vascular risk factor control with even more evidence, even more enthusiasm than you would have done otherwise. But really, at this point, the microbleeding becomes another piece in a puzzle of the kinds of small injuries that we now recognize can add up to be both risks for cognitive impairment and, of course, also risks for future hemorrhagic stroke. 
and becomes another factor to put into the decision-making. Well, how do you deal with patients, if I can just digress a little from microbleeding, who have lacunar infarctions that you've discovered or even have early cerebral atrophy? What do you tell them? How do you treat them? What do you do with this information? Well, what's What's very clear is that what we used to think of as being asymptomatic lesions, so-called silent infarcts, are really not particularly silent at all, that they're quite potent risk factors for future cognitive impairment. And that's really the work over the last 10 years that has changed a lot of our thinking about what it means when we talk about vascular cognitive impairment. It's not the large symptomatic strokes that we already knew about, but now the focus has come on, on these small asymptomatic lesions that clearly mark an increased risk for future cognitive impairment. And if nothing else, it certainly puts us in a situation of pulling out all the stops to try to prevent future lesions with the hope that this will reduce risk of future cognitive impairment. We've been talking today with Dr. Stephen Greenberg. We've been discussing the increased incidence of microbleeds. One more piece in the puzzle about vascular disease, cognitive changes, and cerebral vascular accidents. I want to thank Dr. Greenberg for being our guest today. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. I'm your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.